Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission is to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales, content, and value enablement journeys and fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Ian Altman. He is a popular keynote speaker. He's also author of the book, uh, Same Side Selling, and he is host to the podcast of the same name, which I had the pleasure of appearing on. Ian grew his business to a value greater than 1 billion, leveraging the techniques. He now advises and teaches Fortune 1000 companies and businesses of all sizes. He has a great consultancy and an academy Evolvers. Please welcome Ian Altman. Tom, thanks so much for having me here. Absolutely, Ian. Thank you for appearing. Um, earlier in your career, you indicated that B2B selling was a struggle for you. And in fact, that you got fired from your first B2B sales job. Talk about humble beginnings. Uh, tell us a little bit about your rough start there. Well, the interesting thing was that much like most people who start out selling, someone dropped me into a role and I had no training, no direction whatsoever. In fact, I was in college. There was, there was a, a guy who was in a leadership role within the university who started this business selling this certification program to other universities. And he knew that these other people needed it and basically gave me a script to contact people and say, here are the people to contact and make this many calls per day and give them the pitch about what it is that we do. And I did exactly that. And I was diligent and I made phone calls and I did all this stuff, realizing ultimately that in hindsight, all I was doing was suffering from what I like to call axis displacement disorder, meaning <laughs> I thought that the axis of the earth had shifted and the world now revolved around me, meaning <laughs> I was talking all about what it is that we did and wasn't asking questions like, hey, for other universities we work with, they tell us that this certification is key to them getting funding. Um, how have you guys solved that? And let them say, oh, we, don't, we, haven't, we haven't done that. Okay, well, if you were going to pursue it, other people tell us it takes a year to do it. How about for you? Oh, yeah, that's where things are going to take a year and three people. Okay, well, we have a program that would do that in, in three weeks without any additional help. Would that be worth taking a look at? That would have been a much better approach. Instead, I called up and said, hi, we have a certification program for universities. And they're like, no, thanks. And would yeah. hang up, but I couldn't figure out what the problem was. So I sucked at it. Now, in hindsight, if, the, if, if today's Ian could go back there, I probably would have made a small fortune doing yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that pitch that you just gave with the Socratic questions you were asking, and that hit the cover off the ball exactly. Yeah, but but at the time, I had no clue. So it's it's often one of the things that I that I mention to people, which is, in in many cases, the mistakes that people make in sales is a function of what they've been taught or not been taught, rather than a function of, you know, oh, this person has no clue. Well, they have no clue because they've never done it. It's like, you know, if, if you said to someone, oh, I want you to make risotto, but they've never been shown how to make risotto, it's probably going to suck. Yeah. Now, the good news today is you could go on YouTube and there are so many different advice channels like our collective podcasts and other sources. So the millennials, I think, have a huge advantage to when you and I came into the sales world to where, hey, you know, if you've got a growth mindset, you could pretty much teach, teach yourself 
anything today. Um, so you discovered the hard way that, you know, selling product feature function, you know, acts, uh, as you say, access displacement disorder, all about you, not about the customer didn't work. Um, and then you turned it around. So I'd assume that your second B2B selling job went a little bit better than the first or did yeah, the, it yeah, a the, couple of tries? Yeah, the, 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 second, the second B2B selling environment, as I basically tried to do some soul searching and figured out what I didn't know, worked for a guy who had taught people the um, professional selling system, Xerox's old PSS system. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily the best system, but it was, it was, it was much more consultative in nature. Mm -hmm. And so I, I worked over the summer for a company that sold into the legal marketplace, litigation support type services. And it was a family friend who owned the business and said, look, you know, I've got a salesperson who needs like an assistant to follow, follow her around and learn some things. I said, okay, great. And I noticed that she kept walking away from opportunities that I thought seemed like great opportunities. She just didn't get it. So after about a month there, I said, is it okay if I call back on the ones that she said were dead? And he said, well, you can, but I don't want to waste time pursuing the wrong opportunities. So you have to do it on your own, but here's the commission that you would make if you were actually able to bring those in. And then I ended up, um, I ended up selling more than anyone else in the company over that summer. And then I spent the, uh, the rest of my school being the Western area director for that company <laughs> where the, the, the president of the company said, well, so, um, can we just, can we put you in this job? And I said, well, I'm a student, yeah, whatever, you'll be fine. You'll be able to do this. And I just remember saying to professors, look, the midterm actually conflicts with a trade show I'm going to, um, can we reschedule? And I had the arrogance to be stupid enough to ask a question like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Now, I mean, obviously this person was a well-trained seller that you were working from and learning from. Um, was she using like old BANT kind of qualification? And I, I mean, certainly prioritizing your time as a seller is really important. So not wasting your time on deals that aren't ever going to close is essential. But it sounds like she was just doing standard qualification and walking away. And you were doing something a little bit different. Talk about that. You know what? I, I It's it's tough for me to remember because it's been many moons ago. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what I will tell you is that just in general, what I see people is too often they focus on either BANT. So they're focused on, well, do they have budget? Mm -hmm. The example I always give is if, you're, if your air conditioning died in the middle of summer, it doesn't matter if you have it budgeted, you're going to fix it. And you're yeah. going to prioritize that ahead of other things. So if you figure out what's moving the needle for somebody, then that becomes more valuable. So one of the things that I tapped into was we, we at the time it was interesting. The company, this was in the late eighties. We were one of the first companies that had document imaging and character recognition. And mm -hmm. so we were trying to sell these pieces of hardware, this hardware and software solution that they could scan in documents and convert it to searchable text, which if you're a litigator is critical today. And we take it for granted. We can do it on our phone mm -hmm. back then, highly specialized equipment. And so I, I noticed at one point she was she was pitching this to to a, to a law firm, and the law firm said, "Yeah, you know, we just we just can't spend the money on that." And it was like the each piece of equipment was about fifty thousand dollars. And I see this brand new copy machine, and I said, "And I said, well, just out of curiosity, how much is the copy machine?" Oh, the copy machine is probably like you know a quarter of a million dollars, but we charge our customers 
every time we make a copy and it becomes a profit center. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. Okay. So, so I went back to the company and I said, look, what if we structured this on a per click basis instead? And they said, oh, you can't do that. It's too much risk. And I said, all right, I was a business student. I said, what if we made it so that they did a lease and they had to guarantee X number of months. So you knew you were going to make at least a $50,000. You're guaranteed a minimum. And then after that, it's just all gravy. And he's like, no one's going to go for that because in a year they'll spend $150,000. They could have just bought it for 50. I'm like, okay, just let me try that. And of course I walked in and said, well, so here's something that we charge 50 cents per click. You're going to, you're going to do a minimum of 30,000 of these per month. You're going to lock in a guarantee of six months, but you can charge a buck $52 per they're like, awesome. How many can you deliver? And it was yeah. like, it just, you know, it became That's a profit center for them. Now they didn't care what it cost. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of qualifying them and out, you basically redefined the business model so that it would work around this and made it into a profit center for them. Well, and, and all I did was I said, okay, how do they buy other things? Well, they mm-hmm. buy this other stuff because it's per click and it's a profit center. What if ours did the same thing? And I think that's something that a lot of sellers overlook is especially when you're, when you're delivering something that is innovative or new, okay, how can you fit into a model that the customer already understands Mm -hmm. and it makes it easier for them to buy it, which is why SaaS sellers today have such, have have an easier time because customers are already used to buying things on a SaaS based model. So they say, okay, how much is it per month? Is this much per month? Great. Okay. We understand it. But if you went to the same customer and said, well, so you pay us $150,000 up front, then you pay this much per year, they'd be confused. But if you say it's this much per user per, per month, okay, I understand that model. Exactly. So love it. We're now in a remote and hybrid selling environment. I was just lamenting how I'm, I'm not on the road anymore and actually having to travel a little personally just to make up for it, just to feel like I'm a rolling <laughs> stone still. Um you know, what I'm seeing, Ian, is that there have definitely been some bad selling habits that have returned. Uh, Zoom meetings, a lot of times the seller feels like they have to fill the empty space with a lot of talking, a lot of show up and throw up. And, you know, you you mentioned in the beginning and gave an example of how important questioning is, discovery questions, Socratic questions. Um, are you seeing the same kind of thing? occur where people are reverting a little bit because it's now a new medium, a relatively new medium, or we're tending to rely on it for meetings that would normally have been in person. And what's your advice to kind of get out of that conundrum? I I think that most of this comes back to the same problem, which is people do what someone told them to do or what they know, whether they've been taught something or not. So they just fall back on what they know. So what happens is someone says, well, you can't meet with them in person. We, we don't have trade shows. We don't have conferences. Even though some of that's coming back, there's still a mindset of, well, I got to get in front of people. Well, so now that I've got in front of them, what do you do? Well, you show them all your stuff so they can yeah. fall in love with it. Instead of, there's a, there's a concept that, that we teach in the world of same side selling called disarming. And the idea of disarming is making it clear that, not everyone's a fit for you and you're focused on the people who are the greatest fit and you never want to work with someone who's not a good fit. So you start by saying, look, even though we've helped other people just like you, doesn't mean that what we're doing is going to be a fit for you. And so I want to make sure that I understand fully in our conversation exactly what you're trying to solve. 
If there are any gaps that we have, I'll identify them. If together it looks like it's worth taking a closer look, we'll define the next steps. And if not, we'll both you know, be comfortable telling each other, hey, this isn't a fit, and I'll point you in the right direction. And what that does is it lets everybody take a breath and say, okay, now we're actually all on the same side trying to solve this puzzle together instead of the multitude of LinkedIn requests that I get and messages I get where someone says, oh, we, we, have, we have the best, cheapest way to do X, Y, and Z for you. And I'm thinking, okay, at no point did I want the cheapest. In fact, it was interesting because I've got a relative who needs a common surgery, nothing catastrophic or anything, just relatively common surgery. And there's someone who she was Googling, who's the best person in the area? And it's like, you know, if let's say the, it was for spleen removal, their website is value spleen removal. And it's like, I don't want the cheapest spleen removal. <laughs> I, got, yeah. I want the best spleen removal. I don't want the person who was like discount spleen removal. You, you know, you get a deluxe oven mitt with each spleen removal. It's like, <laughs> if it's important, I don't want the cheapest. I just want the best. So spleen removals are us is not, <laughs> not what you're going to go for. I mean, it's just, it's a goofy thing. So the, uh, the, the idea is that when we reach out, we want to reach out with, so the, the framework we use is entice, disarm, and discover. So first we entice by sharing the problems that we solve with dramatic or extraordinary results. We then disarm the notion that we're not there to sell something by acknowledging not everyone's a fit for us. Then we trigger that discovery phase to learn more about their situation to see if we can help. And if you're someone who's selling technology or if you're someone who has to demonstrate something to people, very often the, the mistake people make is, well, I want to show them every single thing we have. Yeah. Instead, what you want to show them is the two or three things that they need to see to be comfortable taking the next step. And people say, well, how do you know that? The simple answer to that is you ask and you say, so what are the two or three things that you need to see most mm -hmm. to have the comfort to take the next step in this? Yeah. Instead, what they fall into is a show up and throw up, show everything. Uh, they're trying to see what spaghetti hits the wall and sticks. Uh, but what it leads to, particularly today, where we're all under amygdala overload, is just that, um, you know, overchoice. And when you show someone all of the things that your application can do, you know, it results in freezing the buyer in a lot of instances. Yeah, I, I've got a, I've got an organization I'm working with right now where the um, their leadership team said, no, no, our stuff is so sophisticated, so complex, we have to show the whole thing. And it's going to take us an hour and a half to present this. And this is the first demo, the first meeting they're having with this client. And I said, okay, so or you could say, look, here's who's going to be there. What are the top three things people need to see? No, no, we have to show all this stuff. And I said, just so you know, here's the result of what's going to come out of that meeting. If it goes well, they're going to say, wow, that was really impressive. You know, we need some time to kind of digest and figure out where this fits. And then you know, let's get back to you in a few months. I said, and you're going to say, wow, that's great. They're interested. And what I'm telling you is if you didn't do it this way, by the end of the meeting, if it hits, they would say, how quickly can we get it? Yeah. But instead they're going to be overloaded. You're going to take it as a positive. I'm just telling you, this exactly is likely going to be the outcome. And when it happens, mm -hmm. don't be surprised. Yeah. And so right now it's kind of a wait and see and, um, I'm, I'm willing to take side action on it, but I don't think there's anyone willing to bet the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I would not take that bet because I've seen it too. And, you know, there's always this desire because you do love your solution. You love all the capabilities it has, 
but curation of demos and curation of what you show in these meetings, I think is essential. And like I said, maybe it's this issue of having so much blank space when we can't be sitting in a room together that you want to fill. But, um, you know, filling the space in the meeting with good, as you said, enticement, disarmament, and in particular, discovery is key. Um, you talk about shifting the focus from price to value. We know that, you know, sellers aren't always good at doing that. How do you get them comfortable talking about value instead of price? Because we find that sellers still are not that comfortable doing so. Yep. Um, it's, it's one of the most common questions I get in the, in our same side selling Academy, it, it comes up every single month. So we, we have this live coaching session with our members and every single month, somebody brings up some variation or another of, well, this client's beating us up on price and how do we shift? And it's funny because it just happens over and over and it's just a matter of repetition uh, for people to get there. The, the easiest thing to do, the easiest concept to learn is to ask questions and focus on results. And it's something that rarely happens in the sales process. And what I mean by that is, if you were the potential client and I said to you, so Tom, I want to make sure that we meet or exceed your expectations. So six months from now, what would you and I measure so that we know with total certainty that this was a good investment mm -hmm. and that this was worthwhile doing? And then the key is bite your lip and let them speak. And they'll usually sit back because no one's asked them that before and they haven't thought about it. And then it's like, huh. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe we'd measure this. Maybe we'd measure. Well, some of our clients actually measure these two things. Yeah. Would those be relevant that, in your I case? Mm -hmm. Right. Now, yeah, here's yeah. the interesting thing. So, I, I work with a lot of senior executives, and I've done research with over 10,000 executives on how people make and approve decisions. One of the questions that I asked them was okay, so let's say you had two vendors. One is focused on the contract and the deal. The other one is asking you questions about how you're going to measure results and what might prevent you from getting those results. Who would you rather deal with? 100%, I'd rather deal with the person who's asking questions about results. Great. And then I'll ask them, well, how many of you would be inclined to maybe pay a little bit more for the individual who is asking questions? Notice, not guaranteeing, who's asking questions mm -hmm. about measuring results versus someone who's focused on the deal. 100%, yep, I would, I would be willing to pay more for that. How much more? The most common answer is, quote, between 10 and 20%. I don't mean the number is 13. I mean that the most common answer is some people say, well, 10, 20. The most common answer is, I don't know, somewhere between 10 or 20%. <laughs> okay, so how do I shift it from price to value or price to results? I make sure we have a shared end goal, which is the results. The beauty is this, is that there's another way to ask that question. So if it's how much more would you pay for the vendor who's talking to you about the results, the better question is how much less would you have to pay for it to be a good deal, but you don't get the results that you need? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, I'd have to pay 100% less. There's no amount that would be a good amount because if I don't get the results I need, it wasn't money well spent. And so that's how we shift that focus from price to value, or I like to call price to results. Because then anytime the client says, for example, well, I don't know, this sounds good, but you guys are 20% higher than the other people. You get to say, 
you know, and I'm looking through my notes, it said, this is what we're trying to achieve for the results. The only way for us to do this at a lower price is if we put those results in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from our conversation that that wouldn't be a good idea for us to put those results in danger. Do you think we're missing something? And let the client say, well, no, those results are key. Okay. I mean, if someone else gives you the confidence you can get those results at, at a lower price, then of course you should go with that. Mm -hmm. But we're not comfortable cutting corners and putting that outcome at risk. And now it's when the client says, all right, I guess we'll have to do it. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, when it's very often if I'm, if I'm speaking at events, I've got an event coming up a couple this month, a couple next month, where at one point someone said, well, I mean, you know, we've seen you speak at this event and that event, we'd love to have you come out, but, you know, you're a little bit more than what we had planned in, in terms of our budget. And I say, well, that's great. If you want, you know, give me a little bit more background and maybe I can point in the direction of somebody who fits in your budget. Well, no, because I don't think anyone else is going to achieve the results that, that you would. Okay. So what do you want to do? Oh, we'll find the money. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. And it's like, and then usually they say, can you teach our team to do that? <laughs> Almost all the time they can find the money, right? Yeah. There's, there's usually, a, if there's a will, there's a way to get the results, then they'll find the money. If you can deliver the results. Correct. And get the focus on the results and yeah. or the, the work on the risk of not getting them. I think there was an important element that you brought up, which is a lot of times you'll ask the customer, well, what are the results? You'll get the pregnant pause. Sometimes we find that customers are able to articulate what they're looking to achieve, but a lot of times they're not. And the sellers need to have a very clear picture themselves of what a typical organization like that should be looking for from a business value outcomes standpoint, right? Yeah. And so you, you can't leave it up to chance. You need to make sure you've got that pregnant pause and you're giving the customer a chance to try to articulate what it is, but then any clarification you could bring, there's incredible value in being able to do that. Yep. And the more experience you have, the more credible you are with that, because what will start to happen is the client will say, for example, in my business, well, we want to make sure that our team is just selling better and not leaving value on, on the table. Okay. Well, that's, you know, that's very difficult to measure. It's kind of amorphous. Now, for some of my clients, what they actually do is they say, okay, we want to measure what percentage of deals people are discounting today versus six months from now and mm -hmm. what that dollar amount is. Other people will say, well, we want to measure... Um, increases or decreases, but especially increases in average deal size or in the speed and time to market are those the types of things that might be valuable for your business to measure. And then it's like, so you're showing them, here's the other things, but don't assume that just because someone else wants to measure that, that they do, you yes. put it in their lap to decide. And that way it's not measuring stuff that you think is important, but they don't. Yes, definitely. Have them in the bag to bring up so that they know that you've likely achieved those kind of outcomes for other people, yeah. right? And mentioning them, but at the same time, they need to ultimately decide what the key performance indicators are, what the business value is that they care about. Yeah. Um, we're now selling to a committee and not selling to, you know, a couple of individuals like back in the day, which makes things a lot harder, particularly when it comes to discussions like value that we just spoke about. Talk a little bit about how you're teaching today with the decision by committee kind of buyer that we're all faced with. 
Well, it's interesting. Before you mentioned the concept of BANT, which is budget authority, need, and timing. And the idea is that back in the old days, people would qualify and authority meant, or are you dealing with someone who has the authority to make the decision? Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that you treated everyone else like garbage because if they didn't have authority, well, who cares about them? Which yeah. means you would ask questions like, who's the decision maker? Which means whoever you're talking to must be useless. And it's almost like saying, well, gee, Tom, they couldn't possibly entrust this type of decision to you. So who yeah. do they entrust it to? And it becomes instantly adversarial. That's the person I want to talk to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, in, in many cases, even if you're talking to the CEO of an organization, they will often say, well, I want to make sure my team is on board with this. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had someone who contacted me yesterday, the CEO, and said, we want, we want to bring you in. The first thing I said is, well, so your chief sales officer is the person who really you want to support. Yeah. If he's not completely on board, this isn't going to work. So we need mm -hmm. to ensure that he's on board or you're going to spend money and not get results. The idea is that when you have a committee and sometimes it's a physical committee where they're actually a bunch of people. And other times it's, you have a leader who's deferring to people on their team. The idea is to not assume that everyone has the same priorities and needs. Mm -hmm. And if you take the time to talk to each individual and you say, look, just because Tom feels that these things are important, I realize you may have different priorities. What else might be important that we haven't covered that Tom addressed? And you start addressing those. And now you document that stuff and summarize it you have more institutional knowledge than they do at that point. All of a sudden, you understand, here are all the moving pieces that are going to make this solution work for them. Oftentimes, what happens today is people just get too lazy. And it's like, oh, that's a lot of work. It is. But those big complex deals can be incredibly lucrative and really rewarding if you just have the discipline to get the right information. And Ian, you said it. You know, it is hard work. They can't do it themselves, but there's so much value in getting alignment yeah. in the committee. I mean, the biggest value you can provide as a B2B seller is making sure that the buying committee is aligned and documenting that alignment and getting them all to know here is the alignment. Here's where everyone's priorities are different. Here's where they're all the same. And here's where, you're, here's where the business value outcomes are different that you all want to achieve. But here's the collective shared success that everyone wants to achieve from this initiative. And Tom, here's the big gotcha. The big gotcha is most sellers have the mindset of, so how do I convince all these people to do this? <laughs> and instead, the mindset you need to have is, am I confident that we can satisfy everyone's needs in this? And if the answer is no, you need to tell them that. So I've got an organization that, that is very interested in having me work with them but there's a misalignment that they have internally. And I said to one of their board members, who's, who's like trying to arm wrestle me into coming in there. I said, look, you've got this individual who has a different perspective and they're going to be rowing in the opposite direction, mm -hmm. which means you would bring me in. You're going to spend a lot of money and I believe you're not going to get these results. So they either need to be on board with this or you need to bring in somebody who they're on board with as well as everybody else, or you need to change out that role. But as long as you've got that person who disagrees with everyone else, it's not going to be a good use of everyone's time. Now it's easy for me to do that because I don't need the business. So I can, I can put that as a top priority. 
What I will tell you is for anybody who says, yeah, I can't afford to do that because I need the business. Those types of clients become the bane of your existence. Mm-hmm. They end up being like, they suck you into the vortex of evil. You think that you need those deals. You don't need those deals. You should focus on the deals where you're confident you can deliver results. Cause here's the thing. If you deliver a track record of delivering great results for your clients, you're never really working to bring in new business because your existing clients are selling for you. Mm-hmm. And you get, you get a continuous stream of repeat and referral business. As soon as you drop the ball, you, well, yeah, I don't know. I'd feel comfortable referring this person to someone else. Completely agree. And this brings up another area that I wanted to talk to you about, which is so important nowadays, which is trust. Right. Trust is, to me, the key deciding factor nowadays. Um, it's not how you can challenge and stoke someone's emotion to change, albeit important, because you're not going to get out of status quo without kind of shaking up that status quo or the logic of you know, convincing them that the outcomes are worth the pain and the risk is worth uh, you know, investing in and, and the financial justification. But Trust to me is the most important deciding factor now that we're all under this amygdala overload uncertainty that we're dealing with. So how do you teach, and you went over one way, which is alignment, and the second is, you know, sometimes walking away from the business, but what are some other things to become a trusted advisor and the key there to be trust, or as I like to call it, you know, reps now need to be the ambassadors of trust. So for starters, I agree with you 100%. You're always selling trust. First and foremost, it's, it's about trust is, is above everything else. People often say, well, people do business with those they like, know, and trust. And so I go through an exercise and I explain to people, okay, so, so you think those are all important? Yeah. Okay, where's the priority? Well, they have to like you. Okay. Is there anybody who's a close family member, personal friend, people you absolutely love, but for one reason or another, you wouldn't do business with them? Everyone will raise their hand. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anybody who you trust hundred percent, but maybe they don't have a good bedside manner. You don't necessarily like them, but you trust them. And so you still do business with them. Everyone raises their hand. It's like, okay, you would love to have both, but trust is, is the dominant force there. There's a process that, so, so in this research I've done across over 10,000 executives on how people make and approve decisions, there are three questions that, executives consistently ask when making or approving decisions. So the first question they ask, so the, the, the premise is this, you're an executive, someone comes to you and says, we got to buy this thing. Mm-hmm. What are the questions you have to have answered to be comfortable either approving or denying that request? And so I give people, I put, I put executives in groups and they come up with their first, their top five questions, then they narrow it down to three. And across over 10,000 people, the same three questions over and over again. And so I don't care whether they were a small startup or running a multi-billion dollar multinational. I don't care if they're in Europe, in Asia, in the US. The only place I haven't done this is the African continent. So, you know, if you're selling there, you're on your own. In Antarctica, we haven't covered there, but otherwise I get you covered. And the three questions people ask are this. The first question they ask is, what problem does this solve for us? The second question they ask is, why do we need it? Meaning, what happens if we don't solve this? And then the third question is, what's the likely outcome or result if we make this investment? So those are, those are the three key pieces of information. What problems it solve? Why do we need it? What's the likely result or outcome? 
The fourth piece of information that's key is making sure that the right people are involved in the discussion. So in same-side selling, we teach this concept called the same-side quadrants. The idea of the same-side quadrants is a method for taking notes in a meeting. So what we do is take a blank sheet of paper, draw a vertical line down the center, horizontal line across, creating four quadrants. In the upper left quadrant, you take notes about the issue, namely, what problem are we trying to solve? Mm -hmm. So, gee, what is it that piqued your interest in meeting with us? In the upper right quadrant, we take notes about what happens if you don't solve this? Namely, why do I need it? As well as how important is this compared to other things on your plate? In the lower left quadrant, we take notes about the results. Meaning, hey, just because we work together doesn't mean we're successful. What are we going to measure six months down the road to know we're successful? In the lower right quadrant, we take notes about who else is impacted? Who else is directly involved? Who else is a key linchpin to making sure that you're successful in what you're doing? By having those quadrants, taking notes that way and structuring a meeting around that, and then sending a summary of that back to the client, what happens is the client says, wow, they totally understand what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You're also giving them the answers to the questions of what problems to solve, why do we need it, and what's the likely result or outcome? So from a trust standpoint, if you don't have that information about what problem they're trying to solve, why they need it, and what the likely outcome or result is, there's always going to be a, a trust gap because they say, well, they seem really good. Their, their solution seems pretty good, but I don't know how well it fits with our needs. Mm -hmm. But if we follow these quadrants and we, and we echo that back to them, they can say, oh, I have total trust because they took the time to understand our situation. So they know enough about our situation that if they couldn't help us, they would have told us. Yeah. And so that's how, that's how we pivot. I'm a big fan of using structure and process to achieve things because it's easy to say, well, you just have to build more trust. Okay, how do you do that? This gives you a framework to make it happen. Yeah, I love that. And it's so important nowadays to get alignment on that. So personal trust, organizational trust, you're building by going through the process, showing that you understand them. You're also doing something essential, which is building trust in the decision, which they have to get you know, their ducks in a row internally on and with the executives and the COVID committee and the CFNO. Exactly. Well, and the interesting thing is this, is that the summary that we send back in same site selling, we refer to that as the concise business case, mm -hmm. because it's basically what it is. You're giving them a document that uh, it's funny because I, I do this with every client that I've got. And invariably when I'm in there and I'm training their teams and someone says, well, I mean, you know, I don't know if it makes sense for us to take the time to send this summary document. Almost every time I'll say to the, to the CRO to the CEO, whoever brought me in say, do you, do you remember me sending a document like this? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. What was your immediate thought? My thought was, wow, they totally get us. This is going to be great. I said, so where was your confidence at that point? Well, I felt pretty good before. And once I got that thing, I, I felt like I complete trust that we were in good hands. Okay. And then the team goes, oh, maybe I should take the time to send that note. But it's just, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that sounds like more work. Yeah, it is. It is more work. Uh, but but it, it provides, it provides a, a good evolution to get you there. You can't skip the step. And then you've got to also warm the folks who are going to go to that executive to make sure they've got the answers, which they're exactly. going to be asked, because you might not get a seat with that executive. So absolutely essential. Um, hiring sales reps 
we now are remote sellers, digital sellers, hybrid sellers, you know, and that's not going to change. We're not going to go back completely the way it was before. Um, are you advising folks on different skill sets that are needed? Have things changed or is it, yeah, the medium has changed, but a lot of what you want to look for remains the same. I mean, through my lens, things haven't changed that much. I know for a lot of people it has, for me, it's always been, if you get the people who can follow a process mm -hmm. and help the client navigate to a decision that's a mutual decision, then that's the model. The, the big thing that I find is that in terms of onboarding now, especially people remote, there are three components that they kind of need in order to be successful. So the first component they need is a consistent process and system that they follow that everyone in their organization follows. When you make it so that each person kind of wings it on their own, then if things aren't working, you don't know why they aren't working. Mm -hmm. And it might be a personality, it might be the territory, you don't know, Too many all you know is that everyone's got their own thing. So you need a process. The second thing that people need is in essence, a playbook. So mm -hmm. the playbook is the idea of, well, so the client said that we love your stuff, but it's too expensive. What do I do now? Oh, we had a great meeting, but now they're not returning my phone call. What could be going on and how do I respond to that? They want to push us to the procurement people. How do I deal with that? How do I make it so I don't get pushed into, into procurement purgatory? All those sorts of things. They need a playbook for dealing with those individual situations. And then ultimately they need regular coaching and mentoring mm -hmm. so they can role play real life situations. Many people in sales will say, oh, I hate role play. And the question I ask them is, so would you rather screw up with a serious client when it counts or would you rather do it with us when if you make a mistake, it doesn't cost you anything? Because top performing athletes practice, mm -hmm. top musicians practice, top performers in every profession practice except for salespeople apparently are too good to have to practice. Yeah. And, and they and don't, don't practice, you know, they certainly practice in the mirror, but they also practice in live performing situations, scrimmages, um, live performances in yeah. small clubs before you get on that big stage. Exactly. And yeah, so, absolutely. so that, that sort of element in terms of what you're looking for, the other, the other big question, there's a question I, I love to ask, which is tell me when, when you're hiring a salesperson, my favorite question is, so tell me about a deal that you probably should have won, but you lost and why you lost it. Mm -hmm. And you get one of two answers. You either get a totally plausible, really good explanation excuse for why that deal didn't happen. And that's not the last good explanation or excuse they will ever have. Or you get ownership that says, mm, I didn't do X, Y, and Z. And that's why we didn't get it. You want to hire the latter person, not the former. Exactly. Who's going to own that loss and knows what to do and is going to grow from that experience. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, what's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave our Evolvers community with today, Ian, out of all the great advice you've provided so far? The best thing is to tap into and really understand the problems that you solve much more so than what it is that you sell or do. So think about it as what are the symptoms we treat, not what's the medication that we're peddling? Mm -hmm. Totally agree. So I know folks, Ian, can buy the book, Same Side Selling. We will list that in our books that matter. I believe it's already there, but I'm going to double check and make sure that we've got that listing. How else can folks reach you and, and talk to you about some of the great advice you provided? You know what? They can go to samesideselling.com or 
on social media, I'm Ian Altman. So on Twitter, it's Ian Altman. On LinkedIn, it's Ian Altman. Um, there may be more, but um, I think in most cases, you'll find me there. And if people have questions, if people listen to this and have a question about something, fire me a note. It's interesting. I often get these notes and say, well, I'm sure you're not responding. It's someone on your team, but here's my question. And then I respond and they're like, that was a pretty good response. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, so to the extent that I can, I always will respond to those. Um, as, as, as my inbox gets fuller and fuller, sometimes I don't respond as fast as I would like, but, um, but nonetheless, I, I enjoy those conversations all the time. Yeah, Ian, what I love about you is it's you've got, you know, the research and you've got the theories on it, but you also have these constructs and processes and methods that will let people execute on what you're trying to get them to do. And you've made it very practical and easy. Uh, and then you've got the, you know, what's in it for me and the reasons why they should do it readily available so you get it to stick which is also well, really important. You know, we, you know, we hope so. It's, it's a matter of, it's interesting. When I, when I launched the Same Side Selling Academy, it was about three or four months before COVID hit. <laughs> and so here was this digital platform. And all of a sudden, then we were flooded with people who said, well, how do I train people remotely? It's like, well, here's a whole platform for it that gives you this core methodology and what we call the objection clinics for dealing with those playbooks. And then how do we coach and mentor and, you know, it's, it's been, it's been great. And I'm just, I'm flattered that we've had a hundred percent renewal from people from last year to this year. And I mean, it's just been, it can't possibly continue that way, but it's funny because someone said to me, well, when do you think you'll stop personally doing the coach's corner every month? I said, probably when I'm dead. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's for me, it's like my wife always laughs. She's like, Oh, he's fired up. It's gotta be a coach's corner day. And it's like, it just, it's exciting for me to like have, you know, a dozen different role plays in an hour. Yeah. Well, and of course we record every has them going. Yeah, yeah. Keep that going. Definitely yeah. through it's it. And uh, definitely much continued success, Ian. Thank you so much for appearing on the Evolvers with us today. Thanks, Tom. It was a pleasure. Awesome. And as always, Evolvers keep evolving. <laughs>